0: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Maria Semple, whose latest novel is Today Will Be Different. Earlier novels, where Do You Go, Bernadette? This one is mine. Maria Semple was the showrunner for Suddenly Susan, was on the staff of other shows, including Mad About You, Arrested Development, And Ellen got her start writing for 90210, and her dad, Lorenzo Semple, Jr., was what they'd call today the showrunner for the original Adam West Batman show, which means you basically spent your whole life in the entertainment business.
1: Yes. In fact, this is before I was born, but we were living in Spain in Tormelinos. And my father flew to LA and on a handshake deal said, oh, I'll write the pilot of Batman, flew back to Spain, wrote the first four episodes of the TV series Batman where the four villains were introduced. There was the Catwoman, the Joker, the Riddler, and the Penguin. And he wrote all four on an Olympia typewriter from Spain, airmailed them in, they shot them, and then It became such a sensation that very quickly he had to move us all to Los Angeles where he became a very successful, not just TV writer, but screenwriter as
0: well. I saw some of his credits and they were pretty impressive. Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor. Did you know anything about Batman? Did he know anything about Batman? How did he get there? There was a producer
1: named William Dozier, and I should be a better daughter and historian and know about this, but all I know is Barry Diller at the time was the head of 20th Century Fox, and William Dozier had the property of Batman. And my father was a real character and had been a playwright, and just to know him was to be very impressed with his intellect and his wit and worldliness. And so I just kind of on a handshake. Like I said earlier, he went in and said, okay, I got this and flew to Spain. And it was really not what it is now where you have layers and layers of meetings and outlines and it takes forever and so many hoops to jump through to get the job. And so I think they trusted him with it. And what's interesting is this is not a world I'm part of, but I think that there is definitely a part of the internet one of the many chambers of the internet that hold my father responsible for making Batman ridiculous, you know, because his take on it was obviously very campy. That had nothing to do with the comic strip and nothing to do with anything that came after. It was this very, it was a very Lorenzo take on anything. You know, he laughed at everything. He mocked everything. He really saw the humor in everything. And so I think that it really was his bold choice that now just seems crazy to me to take a very serious comic strip And turn it into this camp classic. And in fact, it's a letter I have at home that really is unbelievable. It should be in a museum somewhere. But it was a letter that he included with the four scripts where he, in about two pages, I think created camp said the whole thing is a joke, but Batman and Robin are not in on the joke. They take it utterly seriously. And he really just gave a a long description of the tone of the show, how it should be directed, and that it was intentionally ridiculous, but everybody would take it seriously.
0: In some respects, taking this two places, a movie like Deadpool is almost the grandson or the great-grandson of Batman because it goes back full circle to almost camp.
1: I think that a lot of that is rooted in my father's Batman.
0: But this actually is not really all that different from a book like today will be different because you write comic novels, and your background, despite the serious work he did, seems to come out of the comedy that you grew up with. Very much so. I think that my father was a very interesting
1: character. Like I I say, he was a a larger than life wit and just nutty personality. And to know him is to be kind of obsessed and fall in love with him. You know, men, women, children, everybody just remembers him very fondly. And he's a a real provocateur conversationally. And I think that I grew up in a house where laughter was the most important response you you couldn't evoke from anybody. And so for me... I definitely grew up with knowing that having a dark, twisted take on the world was valuable currency, you know, to get your daddy's attention.
0: So this was going on. Were you doing any writing? Were you doing any kind of fooling around TV writing or movie writing when you were a teenager then?
1: Absolutely not. It's an interesting segue because even though my father was funny and dark, he was such an intellectual and such a serious reader and he was never not reading, and my mother was never not reading, and so I never not read. You know, it's just that was also the culture of the household in a very big way. It was showbiz in that we would have friends who were showbiz people who would come over, but the walls were filled with books, and there was a lot of discussion of literature and history and ideas and philosophy, so I think that it was maybe that combination that made me the writer that I am today.
0: In an interview, you said that, you know, you were in school with people like Bob Newhart's son and Carol O'Connor drove you to school. Yes. So you were part of, you were sort of part of that world, which means on some level, I know a few celebrities and I know that they have to remain within a particular context to be human beings because they walk out there, everybody stares. Right. That means that you grew up in that environment in it, but also outside of it because outside of it, no one knew who the samples were.
1: Yeah, and I think that almost the greatest gift that my father and my mother gave me that would really affect how I conducted myself later in life was that famous people equal non-famous people. They were totally agnostic about it, that we would be friends with someone for a long time and then you'd realize that it was Franklin Schaffner who directed Patton or something. You know, it was just like very kind of random people who were fancy. And we didn't know a great friend of my father's was Roman Polanski, you know, and and a lot of actresses would come by and also writers. You know, James Salter was my father's best friend and he lived two houses down and we grew up in each other's houses. And so at the same time, of course, we hung out with regular people, with shopkeepers. And, you know, we were good friends with the bookie who lived across the street. And, you know, there nobody was kind of more valuable just because they were famous.
0: And then you moved to Aspen, which of course was a different scene, and the elements of your autobiography in Today Will Be Different.
1: Yes. I really loved the idea of Aspen in the 70s. And it's funny, I had a event in L.A. a while back, and there were a lot of Aspen 70s people there. And it really is something special that you can't convince anybody of, of how special it was. You know, it really was a funky former silver mining town that, you know, every Thanksgiving and Christmas, Texans would come up because they'd like to ski. But it was a, a sweet little small town, and we all were in on the biggest secret. In the world which is that this is the single best place to live it's so beautiful that's where we met and befriended James Salter you know so uh, be great writers Leon Uris lived there there were kind of very interesting people you'd have John Denver walking around or Jack Nicholson or the Eagles or Jimmy Buffett I mean or Goldie Hawn and so now it's obviously very different the part of town where I grew up was called the West End which is just these little Victorians in town which is where I have in today will be Different my family living in one of the Victorians in town, right a block away from where I grew up. You know, those are all owned by billionaires. And the and the West End is probably I I, I think I read something like the average occupancy of a house on the West End is eight days out of the year. You know, these are not second houses. They're sixth houses for people who decide they like to come see the Fourth of July fireworks in Aspen. And so there's this beautiful part of Aspen that I feel like when I go there, I still experience Aspen in the 70s and what it was like. And now it's Prada stores and timeshares and everything. But I wanted to try to get that across.
0: How did you wind up being a writer at 90210, and that was a serious show, and after that you went right into comedy?
1: Going back to living in Aspen in the 70s, I was or now we're talking 80s, I guess, that I went to school at Barnard and I was an English major and it was all about books, books, books because that's what we did and that was the culture. And I also was writing screenplays just on my own and this was maybe right after college. And I did that really just because I liked the world and I love my dad and it was something that we could kind of talk about together and do together. And so what happened was I wrote these scripts that didn't get made but I actually was starting to get a little kind of slight reputation you know I got an agent and I was put, getting put up for jobs and then I was on the chairlift one day over Thanksgiving and the person on the chairlift with me was a guy named Darren Starr I didn't know who he was he was just a kid from Washington DC was there for spending Thanksgiving vacation with his family and we were both around the same age and he was also just starting as a screenwriter and we kind of bonded and connected. And we became really good friends. And as happens in Aspen, I think he and his family came over to our house for Thanksgiving dinner the next day because I said, oh, you should come over to our house. And we became friends. And then he was kicking around as a screenwriter. And then he got a big break on 90210. At that point, I'd moved to L.A., had a group of friends. And so Darren said, hey, you're funny and you're cool and you're fun to be around you know I should say more and why don't I hire you on my show now I didn't really work out on that show it wasn't my sensibility I think it was being in a serious drama room that I realized wait I'm a comedy writer and then I started doing comedy
0: I've always been fascinated by what exactly happens in these rooms in these you know we the only template we have in a way is the old Dick Van Dyke show right Is that sort of the way it was, only with more people and a bigger table? You have the showrunner at the head
1: of the table and you start the season, and this is maybe three or four months before production starts, and you start the season with kind of mapping out the season. If you're going to do a season arc or you come up with story ideas or at the time, I don't even know if it's relevant anymore, but sweeps periods, you know, you need right. to get the November sweep shows, the February sweeps, the May sweeps. And so you kind of load up the, the story calendar with the sweeps episodes and you start thinking of... Stories, and then what happens is you then start to work on episode one, and it, it's all verbal around the table. Where what if you know Ellen has a surprise party for her friend Paige, and but Paige finds out and doesn't want to tell Ellen or whatever kind of idiotic yeah. idea you might have for a half an hour to sitcom, and so then you start beating it out on the whiteboard. You know, then everyone's sitting around, and you're starting to think, okay, Ellen's surprise party that's not a surprise. You know, when you start beating it out, what are the scenes? You then make sure that all the supporting characters have a B story or a C story, that everyone's being serviced, let's say. And while this is happening, there's one writer who knows he, that's his show, you know, that let's say that's going to be my show. So
0: he's taking extra notes. Now.
1: Exactly. Like he's not reading Variety and now would be just on his phone. But in the old days, it was taking personal phone calls outside the office and reading Variety. Uh, and so, no, you would actually be taking particular notes and then you'd be giving the story a harder examination. You'd be really kicking the tires and making sure that there's no huge plot holes. And so then what happens is the writer um, on record goes off and writes an outline. And so that's called being out of the room on outline. you know. But meanwhile, the room is functioning. You're doing episode two. You're doing episode three. And then th- that writer comes back with their outline. Maybe it takes four or five days. Then you go back in. You circulate the outline. Everybody pitches on it. At this point, if you're the writer on record, if anyone has a funny quip, you've written it down. You're starting to collect the jokes, you know, that are going to go in your first draft. And then you go off on script, which is maybe a week or two weeks. And then you go off and do the first draft. And so this is all going on on various levels, you know. And so then you come back and... And you rewrite, and all this is really fun and relaxed, but then production starts. And when production starts, it's a whole, this all has to go on while you're doing table readings, you're doing blocking, you're shooting shows, then you have to be out of the room editing. And then it starts getting really crazy, and the nights get really long, and you start getting your your whole demeanor gets really dark. And that's where the bitter comedy writer comes out. And by the end of the season, it's really crazy.
0: And that was suddenly Susan for you. Yes. You were the showrunner and you were on top of the whole thing.
1: Exactly. I actually really like being a showrunner more than anything because I like being in charge of my own time. I feel like I'm actually a good manager. I enjoy managing. I feel like I do bring out the best in people. And another thing I I will say that happens is that when you're working your way up, There are a lot of different styles of showrunners. You know, there's the people who have unhappy marriages and they keep everyone till 2 or 3 in the morning because they don't want to go home to their wives. There's the people who, no matter what, you go home at 5 o'clock because why do we all have to torture ourselves like this and the job can get done during 9 to 5 and why are we Mm -hmm. all behaving like animals on no sleep? You know, there's no reason for that. You also get really abusive people. You get nice people. So what happens is you really... I think it's like if you're a kid, you're like, when I'm a parent, I'm going to, you know, never make my kid clean up their room, you know. So the whole time when when you're being a writer, you're thinking, oh, when I'm a showrunner, you know, this is the type of showrunner I'm going to be. I feel one of the things that I'm really the most proud of is what kind of showrunner I was. I think I really made people feel good about themselves and I wasn't abusive and, and and I tried to get people out at a decent hour.
0: But at that point, you're also taking on more administrative tasks, which means you're not actually doing as much fun stuff because you're busy doing all this other stuff and you're dealing with the suits.
1: Indeed. Well, oh, that's a whole other beast, which is interacting with the network, the studio and the actors and the department heads, you know, so then you really are the captain of the ship, you know. And so it depends on your personality. And some people, for instance, my boyfriend, George Meyer, who was almost the, I would say, the most important single voice that The Simpsons has ever had. He never was a showrunner, didn't wanna be a showrunner. He was a guy who, and he didn't even write that many scripts. Uh, He didn't care about putting his name on scripts. He would show up and he was a constant presence in the rewrite room because what he liked to do is just work on scripts, is make the scripts better, get better jokes, work on stories. And that's someone who, he knew what he liked to do and that's what he did. There's some people, for instance, who are really big joke people, you know, and those fascinate me, the joke people. And I'm I'm not a joke person, you know, I'm a story person and I like outlines, but I'm not good at just, you give me a scenario and go, come on, joke right now. I, I couldn't give you a joke right now. You know,
0: there's some people who can, though. At the same time, today will be different is very funny.
1: It is. And, and I think that it's funny in the way that I'm funny, which is that it's it's not hard joke, hard joke, hard joke. It, it It's more, I think, a situation is funny and the characters are funny and the observations are funny and then I build rhythmically kind of up to really funny, not just situations, but then I can start firing the funny lines. You know, I can't write opening monologue for a comedian or something, you know, just from nothing. I can't just like fire 10 jokes, but I can create a scene where we have a character in a funny situation up against another character and and then figure out how to twist it and how to put dialogue that's funny in our characters' mouths.
0: How do the titles work? Executive producer is the showrunner, but it's also the writer, co-executive producer. The number
1: two person is called co-executive producer. And then to work down the line, it's then supervising producer, then producer, then executive story editor, then story editor. But also what happens is that if you're a big time person who maybe had been a showrunner, and now you're just on staff of a show and it's insulting to go down a rank, there's this catch-all title called consulting producer, which could mean you either maybe just work one day a week or it means you're full-time, it's very unclear.
0: For The Wire, I noticed that both Dennis Lehane and Richard Price were called executive producers, but they were just in the writing room.
1: Uh, Well, that was probably because they got the title of executive producer, because if you're really high up and you are on staff, a lot of times that's just a negotiation that you want to be called executive producer. And particularly if, if Richard Price was just a writer there, let's say, and he got which the exe- was, yeah. yeah, which and he got executive producer title, then probably Dennis LaHaine's agent said, Wait, why is he just a writer and executive producer? We want to be writer and executive producer. So it's like a precedent thing. They probably gave someone the executive producer title and then on on an agenting level somebody said he has to be equal.
0: Basically, your father got screwed out of a title because of his agent.
1: I joke about that. Truly, it's back then, that's not how it worked. There's been real credit inflation between the 60s and today. And so now, I mean, my gosh, you look at these shows like The Simpsons, it's 45
0: producers before the show starts. Maria Semple, we're about to get into the writing of this book and your other books. Suddenly, Susan that was with Brooke Shields right-hmm yeah so that went off the air. did you at that point did you say I'm gonna be a writer? what happened?
1: No th- that was not my last show. That went off the air and then I worked on a couple other shows and I enjoyed that. I didn't really need to be a showrunner after that. Now I'm even trying to remember I, I think what happened was that I really burned myself out on Suddenly Susan. And then I actually discovered Buddhism and meditation a bit. And I thought, I like being a TV writer, but I don't want to play the game that hard. So then I became a consultant maybe three days a week on my next shows. You know, I kind of voluntarily D- d- got off the ladder, but I kept in the game.
0: Was that Arrested Development? Yes,
1: and there was a show that I worked on for two years that I love called Three Sisters. That nobody would know what the show is, but it was on for NBC for two years. But I love that show and did great work on it. And then, and also Arrested
0: Development. And th- this was long after Mad about you.
1: Yes, and so so then what happened was the this whole time. Meanwhile, I've been reading books, talking about books. Don't care about TV. Never watch TV shows. To this day, it's very hard for me when people ask me about. About Arrested Development, because I don't remember what even made it into shows. We would pitch so much crazy material, and I never saw the finished shows. If, if there was a finished show on in my hotel room, I probably wouldn't watch it. I'd probably rather just stare at a spot on the wall. I just weirdly have no interest in watching this stuff. And so I was reading, and I thought, I I want to be a writer, and I just wrote my first book. This one is
0: mine. You said that you weren't quite comfortable writing that book in one of the interviews?
1: Well, I will say it was the best and happiest writing I've ever done in my life. And almost, I feel in a weird way, my whole career from writing for television, after I move on to something that I'm better at, only in 2020 hindsight do I realize, oh, that was kind of harder than it needed to be. And I was trying to put on something in order to write that, you know? And as soon as I started writing This One Is Mine, I felt just freed of all the management battles and all the personality battles, and I could just have complete freedom on the page, and I loved it. Now, I feel like I actually backed off my voice, I would say, in that book. Then I really got into my voice and where'd you go, Bernadette? But I folded it in with a lot of other voices.
0: From what I read, what happened was you realized that Bernadette was not someone you really wanted to write a whole book from her perspective because she was a little bit too damaged.
1: Exactly. And it was just too negative. I just thought it would be a bummer just to read such negativity for so long. And so instead of watering her down or something, you know, which is the easiest choice I could have made. I thought, no, I like her. I like how strong and damaged and negative she is. Like, I'm enjoying it. But I get that I don't want a whole book about her. So I just started folding in other voices.
0: And now we're up to today. will be different. The book takes place over one day. When you were finished with Bernadette and you're looking around for another subject and you've decided, I am not getting back into television. I'm going to write another book. What was the first thing? Was it her voice? Was it Eleanor's voice that came to you first? It was
1: literally the first page of the book. It was the title of the book, Today Will Be Different. The book starts with an incantation of Eleanor waking up and saying, Today will be different. Today I will be present. Today I will look people in the eye and listen deeply. And she continues on that way. Today I will be the best person I can be, the person I am ca- I know that I'm capable of being. Today... I will be my best self today will be different that was the first thing that came as that page and i wrote that page not even realizing it was the first page of a novel i wrote it because i was trying to tap into something deep within me and then thinking like maybe if i can kind of tap into some kind of rich vein then from that i can create a character and create a scenario i really didn't know what i was doing i knew that the starting off point had to come from a deep place you know i wasn't thinking about anything else and as soon as i wrote that first page i thought wow i think i'm writing a novel about one day in the life of a woman who's disappointed in herself and wants to be a better person and wants to love those around her better than she does
0: now well how did then the other characters for instance there's a poet in there her personal (laughs) poet and you have your own personal poetry. I do. How that
1: came about was that I realized that I was writing a very personal book, obviously, and that I'm looking less and less outside of my immediate circle, it seems, as the books keep progressing, you know? And so Eleanor essentially has my life, you know, her day, where how she goes about going through her day is really how I would go through my day yeah. if it didn't you know get derailed the way that Eleanor's does I write my first drafts very quickly. I write them in about three months and as I'm writing them I'm so open and anything that's around me I think I'll put in the book and at the time I I have a friend my poet uh, Ed Skoog who's a wonderful poet and Ed and I would meet once a week at a diner. He would assign me a poem. I would memorize it. And I really did that because I thought my brain was going soft. It's really exactly like Eleanor. I thought, oh, I need to start memorizing things. And I know it'll be poetry. And then I asked someone, I said, is there some really amazing poetry teacher or or poet or something in Seattle? And my friend said, oh, yeah, Ed Skug is the best. And he's the coolest guy. And if you don't know him, you should know him. And so I happened to be doing a a reading with a group of Seattle writers, and he was one of them. And it was maybe a week later, and I said, "Hey Ed, I'm Maria Semple," and he'd heard of me, and you know, and and back and forth. And I said, "I want to study poetry." He was so flattered, you know, that some mom, you know, would want to <laughs> come and spend some time with poetry. That we just kind of created this this private lesson, you know? And so we just started doing it week after week. And I was meeting with Ed at the time that I was writing the book. And I thought, and we were doing Skunk Hour, which I loved. And I thought, oh, I know, I'll just throw in a poet and I'll throw in the poem Skunk Hour. So it was very loose.
0: And Timby, the perhaps gay, overweight son, how did he come in? Oh,
1: he's so cute, Timby. Well, Timby came about because I wanted there to be a child. I thought it was funny, just inherently funny, that the mother wants to think she has the day off and you think you're free and you've dropped your kid off and then you get the most dreaded phone call, which is school 15 minutes later saying your kid is sick. And even if you know your kid isn't sick, you can't say, you can't do anything about it. You have to go pick your kid up even though you have a plan for the day. And that just seemed like a really, kind of a basic comic setup you know, is kind of, it's it's like a road movie, I would even say. Two people who don't want to be together. We're stuck together on a journey.
0: But it's also on some level, almost like a couple of episodes of a TV comedy where the main character just wants to be alone, yes. but she's got a kid. And right. of course, the kid is very specific.
1: Yeah, I love the kid. And so Timby, later in the book, there's a an illustration that my daughter did called that's mommy and then mad mommy. And those are real illustrations that I came across in Mm. writing the book, in fact. And I was writing the book and I was searching for a piece of paper and I opened a spiral notebook that was just around. And there was a sweet picture that said Mommy by Poppy Meyer, age eight. And I thought, oh, that's so cute. And she was maybe 11 at the time. And I thought, oh, look, three years ago, she wrote this really cute little drawing of me and how sweet, I'm not gonna write a phone number on this. And I turned the page over and there was the same picture, but of me really mad with smoke coming out of my ears and my eyebrows all pointed together and it's called Mad Mommy. And so I thought, yeah, I think it's page 247. I have it written down because sometimes I have people turn to it. And so I thought that that was almost what I was writing the book about was a woman who wants to be mommy, but what her child experiences is mad mommy, which is the worst part of her. What I did is I paid her $55 to license those pictures in perpetuity. I have a contract, but I made her rewrite from her name, Timby Wallace. So we photoshopped timby's name into it so so those originals that i have at home say by poppy meyer age eight and so when i saw those and it said by poppy meyer age eight there was one mommy and one mad mommy i just again i was very loose it was a weird choice i thought oh i'm going to make timby eight years old because i'm going to have him in the course of the day draw mommy and mad mommy have Eleanor Flood see it and feel devastated and realize, wow, that kind of sums up my life, that I wanna be mommy, but really what my kid, my most important beloved relationship in my life, how he experiences me is just this frazzled person who just can't be present with him.
0: So at a certain point, as you're beginning working on the book, later elements are gonna suddenly come in. In the middle of the book is a 12-page comic that mm-hmm. was actually created by an artist at Wired Magazine, and a a letter from Dan Klaus. Yes, which you wrote, but he rewrote for you.
1: Yes, <laughs> I knew that I wanted. Eleanor to be an artist because I'm an artist and I'm always grappling with being an artist and a mother and Bernadette was an architect and so I thought that I would make Eleanor an artist and I like the idea of being an illustrator and I also like the idea of Animation because I try not to go too far outside of what I know. And because George Meyer, my partner, worked on The Simpsons forever, we ended up knowing a lot of animators. And I feel like I know the animation world. So I felt like with a certain amount of credibility, I could write about the animation world. So I thought, oh, I know, I'll make Eleanor an animator. And then as I started learning about animators, I then just came up with a profile of Eleanor Flood and what her background was, and I thought I'd make her an illustrator. And as soon as I did, it just seemed like almost fraudulent on my part that if I was going to write something in the book, like she was the most brilliant, amazing illustrator. I just thought that my very vivid, specific dream that I had created for the reader would have just kind of gone poof, because how can you picture it? How do I describe it? So I thought it would just be very easy just to say, oh, I know, I'll put some illustrations in it and and I'll I'll hire someone to do them for me.
0: I guess she was the assistant showrunner for uh, a TV show similar to The Simpsons, but not The Simpsons, called Looper Wash.
1: Yes, Looper Wash. And so, what she is, is she's the head of animation. She's okay. the head director of animation. And in Looper Wash, the world of Looper Wash, the writing offices are never where the animation offices are. You have your animation studio that's in a different part of town certainly if not a different city, you know. And so I created this whole little world of the animation studio.
0: Is that world in a way related? I mean, you got that information from your husband about how that would work then.
1: You know, I think I maybe asked him a couple questions, but I think I knew almost as much as he did in some ways of what it looked like to go over there because for he, when he was working on The Simpsons, they would come and show him animatics or the the writer's animatics or rough assemblages of the animation. They'd come to the writer's offices. But in terms of what it all looks like and how they all interact with each other I certainly knew animators through him you know and who'd become friends of ours because he was on the show and we were together for 15 years so you just they become your friends and you get to know them so I called some of them and emailed them and what I did is I created the team of animators and turned them into a writer's room as as I knew a writer's room and I thought even if I'm fudging it I don't care because I want to really write about a writer's room but I don't want (laughs) to I I don't want to make them writers So I just made the dynamics of the writer's room. I turned it into animation.
0: The plot, such as it is, hinges on uh, her husband, Joe. You made him a hand surgeon, and he disappears, and Eleanor's job on her own is to find out what's going on, which we do find out. At what point in this writing did you realize I've got to have something more than just her day with Timby.
1: Early on, I'm a real story queen. You know, I will not just write without a very strong story. My book takes place in a day, and so I almost felt like I was in handcuffs in terms of a story because what stakes can you have in one day if you're not Jack Bauer trying to save the world you know I mean this is one day and I realized I needed to have a real spine of the story it's not just a bunch of self-reflection that starts at a certain time and ends in a certain time I want this to be a page turner I want this to be muscular and I want there to be cliffhangers and act breaks and all these things you know as as, as a good story has and as good novels that are good stories have. And so I realized early on that that would be a simple, subtle moment early on where Eleanor goes to Joe's office and she doesn't really like the assistants and they don't like her and they're all already in a weird game of cat and mouse like the his nurses think that he belongs to them, you know, and think of, uh, you know, the wife is this kind of outsider. Who, and, and I and I think anyone who's a wife or a husband of someone who works somewhere kind of has experienced that of being seen as the interloper or something <laughs> with right. your own husband or wife, you know, when you go into their work, you know, like, oh, we know him better than you do, you know, and, and we we look out for him better than you do, that type of thing. So she goes into the office and is confronted with that and then finds out that he hasn't been in the office for two weeks. And she has just seen him that morning. And one of the first thing that happens is she walks in after uh, after Eleanor has been walking the dog, and she sees that Joe has his head down on the dining room table. That's a really kind of despairing vision. And she's so kind of distracted and funny and wisecracking that she just pretends not to see it no, that's good. that worked itself out you know ha ha ha. But now that she realizes that he's not been going into work for two weeks and then she puts it together with his head down on the table. she thinks, oh God, what's going on here is the rug just been pulled out from under me? And so she then spends her day trying to come up with what really could be happening. And that really is my story those that's the story that I'm following as a writer. Uh,
0: did you intend for readers like me to sit there, for the last 75 pages of the book and say what about the dog
1: mm. yes and no that's interesting i would say that maybe 10 percent of the readers are actually thinking about the dog so you're one of the people who actually is remembering that the dog is tied up now <laughs> i actually hit it right where i wanted to which i feel is a great triumph on my part I do really get texts from friends going, wait, what about the dog, you know? and <laughs> But what I'm hoping, and I'm assuming that by that point in the book, you know you're in good authorial hands. That if the do- I, the author is not going to just forget, or the copy editor is not going to forget that the <laughs> wait, that you tied the dog up at Costco and now you run off on a wild goose chase. <laughs> and so, what's interesting though is I think so you you notice the dog.
0: I noticed the dog. And fantastic. Yeah. Okay, that's but good. But I, ha- I had a dog. See, yeah.
1: that's the thing. So you've noticed the dog, but I would say I'd say ninety percent of the people, as soon as Eleanor later in the day goes. Oh, my gosh, the dog. I think most readers go, oh, my gosh, the dog. Like, they have forgotten the dog, too, and they're as horrified as she is that she's forgotten the dog.
0: Timby seems to have forgotten the dog, too. Yeah,
1: they both forgot the dog. (laughs) I know, it's a very forgettable dog, despite how cute the dog is.
0: Maria Semple, Bernadette's becoming a film? We think so, yeah. You have no interest in going back to TV?
1: I have an interest in going back to TV under the right circumstances. You know, it's hard because I live in Seattle, you know, so I can't just go work on a show in LA. And I do think that there are circumstances by which I could work in a limited series or something and do my work from Seattle, but we'll see. Never say never and I do like being in charge. You know, that's weirdly the thing that I love the most. I do love the management aspect of it. I love the problem solving and the troubleshooting and all of that. So in terms of, I don't know that I would write an outside script for a show from Seattle. There would be kind of no reason for me. I'd rather just lie around in bed and read. Uh, But if there was some fun challenge of doing a show, I would certainly be open to that.
0: About two-thirds of the way through the book, I suddenly got this weird thought in my mind as I'm sitting there laughing, going you know, these are really white people problems. It's like, these are the problems that people who don't really have problems have.
1: That makes sense to me. And I reject it because I feel like What I want to do is give you a good time. I want to strap my heroine onto the roller coaster and have the reader go along with her. And as long as the book is fun and wild and crazy, which it is, and it's a fun reading experience and you're doing things like, wait, the dog, you know, and you're just totally engaged and having a good time. You know what it is? You know, it's interesting that when you say that, I feel like a lot of people seem to think that I'm trying to get sympathy for my characters when I'm really not and it's very strange to hear people go oh well I I didn't care about like or I didn't like her or her problems aren't that important and I I think well who says that someone's problems have to be important I mean to me the most Maybe one of my favorite movies ever is a little Iranian movie called The White Balloon about a girl who just wants to get—sees a goldfish in the store and really wants to get the goldfish. What I want to do is create a scenario by which I have a protagonist who really wants something. And I think that the want can be relatable. And in this want— She wants to be the person she knows that she's capable of being. And I think we all wake up every day going, oh, I'm going to be nicer to my kids. Or I am going to get off the Internet and play Clue tonight with the kids. We're going to sit down as a family and have dinner together and not just kind of snack, you know. And I'm going to exercise. I'm going to whatever the thing is. And I think that rich people, poor people have these problems. And, And I'm really writing about just this kind of recurring daily disappointment in oneself because you just are not living up to your potential on just kind of a microtransactional level.
0: Well, the reason I brought that up is because I suddenly began feeling guilty about that myself because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm seeing obviously not my best parts in her, right. particularly when she's trying to avoid the friend for lunch.
1: <laughs> indeed, indeed.
0: Right, because that's exactly what we go through. This right. a quote. Where you said, I get a sick thrill finding an aspect of myself that is ugly to expose than doing it anyway with a highly specific rant that nobody else could possibly relate to and then committing to it. Yes. Which is exactly what this book is.
1: Yes. Well, thank you. I like that. I feel like I will observe something. and think, wait, is it funny? My take on it, I don't even know, but I think it's kind of funny. And then I'll just write it and I'll commit to it and I'll polish it and I'll put it out there. And in most cases, I will say, I read it a year later quoted in a review of how wonderful the writing is, you know, and, and almost like how fearless I am as a writer, which I do think a lot of people read my books and think, my gosh, who's, who's crazy enough to write this?
0: Yet at the same time, this is not just somebody just thinking stuff up. This is someone who's worked on this craft for several years in a writer's room in television. It's not as if it's just out of the blue.
1: It's not, it's not a Yelp rant, you know? This is a, a very finely constructed novel that story comes first. And within that, I need to support some of my points. And if it's in, in rants, then more power to everybody.
0: Maria Semple, you working on another book now?
1: I'm not working on another book. I am on tour with this book, and then I I actually like to take two or three years off between books and not even think about writing. And then when I come up with some idea that really I connect to strongly, when I came up with the title, Today Will Be Different, I got excited, and I wrote a first
0: draft in three months. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com or find the Book Waves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org, or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.